So this morning, it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Howard Dahl. Howard and his wife, Anne, both worked with crew at the University of Florida and the University of Georgia. Howard attended Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, earned an MA in Philosophy of Religion. Howard and Anne were among the original founding members of Salem in 1979, and Howard served as a Salem elder for many years. Howard and Anne's three children grew up in Salem. They have eight grandchildren. Howard has been in the farm machinery manufacturing business for many years, including extensive business in Eastern Europe. He has been a faithful ambassador for the Lord Jesus within his work. So I think it is especially fitting that Howard speak today on what the book of Proverbs teaches about integrating faith and work. Would you please welcome Howard? Get the pages in order here. <laughs> Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God and Redeemer. If you'll allow me to say hello to my wife, who is watching online, not feeling well, ask you to pray for her tomorrow. She has some knee surgery, but uh, hey, Ann. <laughs> my 45-year journey to integrate faith and work began in 1977 when we moved to Fargo after finishing seminary training. I wrote some thoughts down that summer that were aspirational, if you will, my goals. I wrote to have a world where there was no sacred secular dichotomy, that all people and all things that I did were sacred. I wrote that I wanted to have no blue collar, white collar dichotomy in my business. I wrote whether eating or drinking or whatever I did in manufacturing, it would be done to the glory of God. I wrote down that I wanted to have generous profit sharing, that whatever we um, did that was successful, that every one of our employees benefited. And I wrote down I wanted to make an impact on global agriculture. So it's 45 years and uh, the journey continues. But during that time, as I thought about Sunday and Monday connecting well, I had a couple of verses that just per without question dominated uh, my thinking and still do. You cannot serve God in money. You're either going to hate the one, love the other, love the one, hate the other. It's impossible to serve both. So when you're in business and profits are like blood, they're necessary to have a viable business, that dance continues for me. The other verse that has dominated 
most, uh, as much as any verse in my business has been, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I'll tell you the oddest place that that verse was actually applied. November 20th, 1987, our bank called our line of credit. Now, I don't know how much you know about manufacturing, but you can't function without a line of credit to manage your inventory receivables and everything. I just was numb. I had no idea what to do, except there's a God who cares for me. And so I fasted for 60 hours and just prayed, Lord, what, what should I do? And the answer was, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I owed 238 people money, and I couldn't pay them. So I wrote a letter to all 238 people and said, we have a great product that's close to being a reality. Uh, we, and if those of you who don't know what the 80s were like, about a third of farmers went out of business, about a third of implement dealers, and about maybe half the manufacturers went out of business. It was a tough time. So I write this letter to these 238 people, giving them options. But the main thing in that do unto others, as you would have them done to you, is to be truthful. I needed to not sugarcoat it. I needed to lay out the way things were. And I can't go into all the details, but 237 of those 238 people showed me grace. And uh, as a result, and there's a lot of other things that happened over the next year, but uh, I've yet to see a place with a customer, with an employee, with anybody where that does not apply. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm going to share with you one acrostic that uh, has helped me greatly, recently especially. Um, Kent Hannestead's not here, so I can use an acrostic with... Uh, <clears throat> and that is LIFE, L-I-F-E. So we all have talked about being stewards over time, talent, and treasure. But I found an acrostic that helps me even more so. So the word LIFE... L stands for labor or my time. F stands for finances, my treasure. E stands for expertise, my talent. Anybody have an idea of what the I is in between? <clears throat> it stands for influence. And we are stewards over our influence. And each of us has influence with certain people. And for me, the biblical teaching on being salt and light in the world is all about influence. And my prayer that I pray out of fear quite often is, Lord, don't let me dishonor you in anything that I do in my marketplace. So as I was asked to speak on faith and work uh, this morning, I spent time in a lot of different commentaries I have on Proverbs and uh, found one model that just spoke to me in a way that I'd never seen before. And it's from an organization called Theology of Work. And they suggest, and I really <clears throat> believe it to be true, that the greatest business person in the entire Bible 
is found in Proverbs 31 and is a woman. The best example of marketplace leadership is a woman. That's found in Proverbs 31. And again, it's an acrostic, 22 verses, each one beginning with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. The word describing this woman can be wife or woman, but we know that she's married because it says her husband trusts in her in every way. The uh, moving conversation I had in about 1997 in Moscow, I was involved in uh, as a board member of the only Christian liberal arts school in Russia, and it was called the Russian American Christian University at that time. And I'll never forget two young women who were studying accounting. And if we think the U.S. has not been a place for great opportunity for women in, in our history, in Russia it's impossible for, has been for a woman to arrive to a place of leadership. So these two young women who were accounting majors, after I spoke to them, came up, do you think it's possible that we ever could move into a management role in a company? And I told them that my chief financial officer, who is unbelievably talented, is a woman. And I said, yes, not just in the US, but in Russia. And indeed, that's happened, great opportunities. And so I think it's a, a wonderful, uh, new thought for me that as I've thought about all the business people in the Bible, I, I really believe we see an exemplary leader right here. She is an entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs by definition are risk takers and uh, start things, create jobs and benefit others if they're successful, but only about one out of every five entrepreneurs uh, continues in business. It's not easy. You can read this and try to compare yourself and you can get under the pile saying, wow, I can't possibly live up to this standard. I mean, this is such an uh, exceptional person that I can't possibly do this. I have benefited greatly from a wise person who sat me down like three years after I'd been in Fargo. And he said, if you compare yourself to your father or your grandfather, you're going to always feel like a failure because uh, comparison's a terrible thing. You've got to be your own person. And in my case, um, it really was helpful that I didn't have to compare myself with them and their success. I owe the outline that I'm going to go through with you from theology of work, the organization, as I'd mentioned, and they spell out five qualities that show up in the leadership of this amazing woman. I probably should spend most of the time, and I will spend a big chunk of the time on the first quality, which is trust. Trust is quite amazing. It takes a long time to build trust with certain people takes a lifetime to build trust with certain people. It's hard work to build trust. 
It means going the extra mile. It means doing a lot of extra things. And yet, trust can be lost in one decision. You can lose trust so quickly. And so to maintain trust is just an amazing thing. Stephen Covey's great book, The Speed of Trust, is one of the best books I've read in the business world. And it talks about companies that have high trust, get things done more quickly, and companies that uh, have high trust <coughs> serve their clients, their customers in the very best way. Before we launch into that, however, we have to go to verse 30. As we've been <coughs> going through the series in Proverbs, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Somehow the fear of the Lord shows up throughout everything we do in Proverbs, every place. It says this is the beginning of wisdom and it's what really matters. And I believe that fear of the Lord will, will unpack it a little bit. And, and, and I, as I close, I'll tell you some thoughts as to how I apply this. Trust, first of all, her husband has full confidence in her, in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. High trust in her household. High trust with her customers. Verse 14, she's like the merchant ships that bringing her food from afar. And to organize a business, and in today's world, I can tell you it's the most challenging year I've had in 45 years of manufacturing, where you order products 45 or 14 months in advance and then you don't know whether it's going to be here in time. You have to determine what you're going to sell that long in advance. So the idea of merchant ships from afar, I think about all the ships stuck in Shanghai Harbor that uh, can't go. I now think of all the ships in Odessa Harbor and uh, the food for the world. But this whole idea of international business, of merchant ships coming from afar, Verse 20, she opens her arms to the poor, extends her hands to the needy. She's a great community member. She is not just involved in her business, but she sees the community as part of her world. And we've talked about family already, but verses 12 and 28, um, her children rise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. An amazing leader who somehow can balance everything and uh, be a blessing to everyone. And her co-workers, in verse 15, she gets up while it is still dark, provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls or her employees, if you will. So in modern business theory, you see the word stakeholders and not just customers. So my role is to be uh, involved in so many different areas. My suppliers, my customers, my community, my employees, and I treat all of them as important. But above all with trust, words matter. 
Someone once said, how can you tell when a salesman is lying? The answer is his lips are moving. And uh, I've had to sit down with some of my salespeople after making a presentation and say, you exaggerated. You said some things about our product that are untrue. And we can't have that. We will never have trust if we overstate what we are doing. Great companies at least match, if not exceed, customers' expectations. And to do that, you cannot exaggerate. So sometimes <clears throat> that, that's hard as far as your words being true. So if your banker tells you, what are your greatest fears? <laughs> and if you tell him your greatest fears, there's a chance you'll never get a loan. So you have to balance your vision of what's going forward as well as your fears. But words matter. To have long-term customers in all business is a voluntary choice between a buyer and seller. Nobody forces you to go to a certain restaurant today or to go to a certain store and buy stuff. It's a voluntary activity and it has to be mutually beneficial both, both ways. And trust is everything in this. Telling the truth is probably the most common theme throughout Proverbs. You can, could list a uh, hundred passages about that. I love Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Whatever we do, whatever our role is, whether teacher, business person, wherever we might be working for somebody, truthful words matter a lot, and that's the way we maintain trust. And so I don't think everything else, uh, everything else is important, but nothing as important as what we've begun with, this matter of trust. This Proverbs 31 woman is diligent. And as you see throughout, she pays attention to details. Uh, for those of you who understand a little bit about manufacturing, uh, when you have a bill of materials and you're building a machine that has 2,900 different part numbers and every part has to arrive on the assembly line at exactly the right time and coordinated, uh, you want to manage your inventory and everything, it's a big, big challenge. And uh, I can't thank God enough for some great people that I've had the privilege of working with who are skilled in that area. And diligence, paying attention to the little details are really important. And we see um, a number of uh, verses about her uh, about her diligence in this passage. She's a hard worker, and there's no substitute for hard work and, and business success. Uh, somebody thinks I'm gonna be an entrepreneur and create, create a great business on 20 hours a week. Uh, they're, they're dreaming. And uh, I would say that we look at the ant in the, throughout Proverbs and we look at the verses on the sluggard and we get a clue that there is a connection between business success and hard work. 
And this uh, Proverbs 31 woman gets up before sunrise to take care of what needs to be done. She's a careful manager of money, careful manager of the resources. She has long-term planning in mind. Uh, you don't plant a vineyard without having a long-term plan because a vineyard's not going to produce for a few years. And yet that's what she does. So she's looking ahead and has a long-term plan. She is shrewd. Preparing for all eventualities. You know, stuff happens. Things go wrong. And in my case right now, I have lots of machines that are necessary for harvest. Uh, in some cases, beginning maybe August 20th, I'm shipping those machines out to my dealers without all the parts because our suppliers are shipping them in late. So my whole team gets together and we say, how do we manage this challenge? How, how can we even possibly do it? And in some cases, we're not guaranteed that some parts are gonna be here in time. And so I rely on the wisdom of a lot of other people and we communicate to our customers, this is a situation. And uh, I think through the New Testament on shrewdness, Luke 16, the unrighteous steward who negotiates a better uh, exit deal for himself by writing down the invoices for his master is praised for being shrewd. And the statement is, it's unfortunate the children of light are not as shrewd in dealing with mammon or money as the children of darkness. And so the balance between being totally truthful and shrewd, which I will say sometimes involves creativity, but it's managing tough details. There always are gonna be problems and how do I manage those problems? The other teaching of Jesus, when he sent out the 72 by two, he says, be shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves at the same time. And so how does that look? How, how do I, at the same time, be as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove? Proverbs 31, 17. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. Uh, and vigorously attacking tasks, whatever they might be, does involve... And, I think we can use the word wisdom in substituting for shrewdness because I think wisdom's very close to that. She's generous. Pro Proverbs 31, 20. Actually, we need to read 19 and 20. In her hands, she holds a distaff and grasps a spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. So there's two different Hebrew words for hands here, and she interchanges those in both 19 and 20, which is connecting these, these two. But you notice that she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. There's a connection between, between being successful 
profitable and the ability to be generous. If you have a business that's failing, you have no chance of being generous with the poor. And so I would tell you that I had the privilege of speaking to probably the most liberal social group in Fargo, the Presentation Sisters, about 15 years ago. And my topic was why they should be applauding the companies that make the most money. And you could just see them sitting back. And uh, I won't go through all my points, but uh, I told them the companies that are most successful generally pay the highest salaries for their employees. They generally have the longest uh, longevity for employees, so they aren't going to have layoffs as much as other companies. But I said to them about generosity, and I had this privilege of giving this talk at a couple of universities, and I said, you should be appreciative of profits because some of you have endowed chairs in areas that you're very critical of capitalism, and so that endowed chair allows you to be in the university setting to critique capitalism. And so I do believe that, but for a Christian, the deep matter of stewardship. I, I don't see that I give a tithe and that's meeting God's standards, but rather all that I have is God's and I basically need permission from him for an allowance and I need him to guide how I use the resources I have. Therefore, good work, successful work is in, inseparable from generosity. Proverbs, or not Proverbs, yeah, Proverbs nineteen seventeen, a great verse. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repay, repaid in full. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full. Scripture is so clear on this, and uh, it, we all just need to take this seriously, and this Proverbs 31 woman understood it well. I love all the better is passages. Better is a little with righteousness than large income with injustice. Uh, better is the word of God than much fine gold? Yes, than much fine gold. So if we offered an ounce of gold to anybody who came to church this morning, what would attendance be like? How many people could you persuade to come to church if we offered an ounce of gold? And for me, that's been a challenging passage to think through. Do I really believe the word of God is a much greater value? And I use an illustration in my head one time when I had a very, very successful sale in Russia where I made about a million dollars on one order of uh, 50 sugar beet harvesters. And uh, the thought came into my head, am I more excited about this than if I had the privilege of leading an employee to Christ, which in the first service, one of my dearest long-term employees was that uh, and as I answered that question emotionally, I probably had to answer I was more excited about that sale than leading somebody to Christ. So generosity is a core quality of this woman. And the great companies do take stewardship seriously. They really do. 
So the last part that I think is really central throughout Proverbs are words. There are more Proverbs about the tongue than any other topic. And uh, I can tell you, I've had the privilege of leading a men's businessman's Bible study for 43 years, and it's been uh, a joy of my life. But many, many times, uh, a number of times each year, James 3.1 hits me between the eyes. It says, let few of you become teachers because you will incur a much stricter judgment. Let few of you become teachers because you'll incur a much stricter judgment. It's a, it's a fearful thing to open the word and think about, am I handling it accurately? Or am I manipulating it in any way? So words are to be few. We are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. A verse that's helped me so much in the last few years is Ecclesiastes 5. When you come into the presence of God, let your words be few. Draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for God is in heaven. And so I've thought, how often do I just rattle off all sorts of needs to God versus saying, God, what do you, say to, what do you have to say to me? What do I need to hear? So in my, I have the privilege of having Saturdays free now, which I didn't for much of my early years, and uh, dedicate a leisurely time on Saturday morning for prayer and journaling. And a prayer that I do every time is, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any way in me that's displeasing to you and lead me in the way everlasting. And I often hear things. <laughs> And I've heard things recently that I'll not go into. But as I listen, it's just amazing what I hear. And to me, that is what the fear of the Lord means. It means listening to God because he cares more deeply about me than I care about myself. He wants to guide me. And some of you may have the fear of God picture of a traffic cop. You're a person who loves to drive 90 miles an hour in a 70-mile zone, and you have this picture of a traffic cop. You're, you're fearful of where a traffic cop might be. Some people have that fear of God image. But if you have the picture of God as a father who's gently helping a six-year-old son ride a bike without training wheels, walking alongside, making sure the son doesn't fall, or the five-year-old son who's for the first time going to swim without swimmies, being right there to protect and guide and guard. It's your image of God that really shapes. But I do believe the fear of God is having a sense that all that I say and all that I do matters. Every word I utter matters. I'm going to give an account someday. But I'm not giving an account to a harsh judge. I'm giving an account of one who loves me far more than I love myself. 
how you see God matters. And when we look at this whole theme about Proverbs, God cares about my purchasing department, my welders, every aspect of my business, every person. And when I see them properly as sacred, as created in God's image, and I have the privilege of serving and working alongside them, I then understand what the fear of God means. Tim Keller has helped me enormously um, in, in many ways, in many of his books, but a thought that I've shared with my men's group over and over, and um, I repeat to myself many, many times, is I am more sinful than I ever could imagine. I don't have to pretend that all my thoughts are pure. I don't have to defend my actions to you, saying, well, if you knew why I did this, you wouldn't feel upset with me. I don't have to be defensive when I understand that God's my audience. He alone knows. And therefore, I can say I'm more sinful than I ever could have imagined. I am greedy, I'm envious, I'm lustful, I'm short-tempered at times. I have all these qualities that are present, but I have a God who forgives and loves. Indeed, I'm more sinful than I ever could imagine, but I'm more loved than I ever could have hoped for. And those two, as I carry intention, really help me understand more clearly the fear of the Lord. God knows every one of my thoughts. He knows my motives, my intentions. In Hebrews 3 and 4 spells this out well. Three times it says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Well, to hear his voice, I need to listen. And I need to say, God, what have you got to say to me? Are there ways in me that are displeasing to you? So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And then it goes on to say, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Only God knows my intentions. And when I am comfortable with that reality, I'm less defensive and I'm less prone to have to defend my actions before others, whatever they might be. And to the freedom that I have there, the better that I can be a leader in my own company. The final thought of Hebrews 4 is we have a high priest who knows everything. He understands everything we're going through and he invites us to come before him to receive both grace and mercy in time of need. Are we needy? We're, we're needy every day. And therefore, we need to fully appreciate how wonderful the thought that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thank you.